Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. We continue our look at uh, all the justices' opinions in the Dobbs case that we've been discussing. Uh, What remains for us is to actually take a look at the dissenting opinion. These are the three justices that uh, completely disagree with the uh, majority opinion. And joining me right now to help us understand what the rationale is and to help us hear the voices of the dissenters, we've asked Stephen Mikochik to join us. Uh, He is a visiting professor at Ave Maria School of Law, where his courses examine constitutional theory in light of Catholic moral teaching. He's Professor Emeritus at Temple Law School, where he taught constitutional law and jurisprudence for more than 30 years. He's also the former chair of the National Catholic Partnership on Disability. And uh, Stephen, good to have you with me. Thanks. Al, thank you for having me. Well, let's begin uh, the three dissenting, uh, three dissenters here, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Breyer, uh, could not bring themselves to think that the states were the place to handle the abortion decision. They wanted to continue to look at the right to abortion as a fundamental constitutional right. Uh, right. How did they argue? What, 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 how did they try to maintain their position on this? Well, you have to understand a little bit of Alito's analysis to see what they dissented to. I mean, we were dealing with the due process clause of the 14th Amendment and then unenumerated right. So essentially we're saying that no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property contrary to the law of the land. Mm-hmm. Now, how do you determine what the law of the land is? Alito says you do it by history. You see whether uh, a right, a claimed right, is well settled in Anglo-American law with special emphasis on the the generation that ratified the 14th Amendment in 1868. Mm -hmm. And Alito said in 1868, 26 of the 36 states had very restrictive abortion laws applying throughout pregnancy. Uh, And that continued until the time of Roe versus Wade. Uh, So he said that if you look at, if we're trying to figure out what the law of the land was and what the framers of the 14th Amendment thought the law of the land was, uh, you look at history, and certainly in 1868, most of the states uh, criminalized abortion. Right. Now, Alito, uh, not Alito, but Breyer and, and Sotomayor and, and Kagan disagree with the emphasis that uh, Alito places on history, and their essential argument is, look, women didn't have the right to vote in 1868. Yeah. So it's unfair to impose on them a provision that they had no say-so in its development. The problem with with that approach is it undermines the enduring notion of law itself. I mean, I didn't, you didn't have a say in the ratification of the 14th Amendment because we simply weren't alive. Any sub any subsequent generation is going to have the same claim. Why impose on me something I didn't have any say-so? Yeah, yeah. Well, the response to that is twofold. First of all, you have to look at the legitimacy of what was adopted. Was it adopted uh, pursuant to 
legitimate procedures, and the 14th Amendment arguably was. And the second is, what opportunity do you have to change the law? And, of course, since at least 1920, with the ratification of the 19th Amendment, right. women had the right to vote. And by referring this back to the states, women certainly will have a voice, if not the predominant voice, in whether their states um, adopt liberal abortion laws or very restrictive abortion right. laws. Right. Uh, so uh, what they wanted as an alternative, what the dissenters wanted as an alternative to Alito's emphasis on, on history, first was to preserve Roe. Uh, they thought Roe was an adequate balance of the competing interests between uh, the state's uh, protection of uh, fetal life and uh, the woman's interest in having abortion. And, you know, the problem with any balancing um, is that there's always a thumb on the scale somewhere. <laughs> and, and if you look at, if you look at uh, Blackman's opinion in Roe versus Wade, he, he, he couldn't, in most of the opinion, bring himself to admit even that the fetus was alive. He kept talking about potential life. Right, right. And if you're going to if you're going to compare that with a woman's right to abort, an adult, well, or teenager, but a, you know, somebody who's actually there versus something that he thinks is only potential life. Then you know which way that the scale is going to be tipped. Right, right. All right. Now, I mean, we could spend a lot of time talking about the the viability point that Blackman thought was the way of accommodating the competing interests. Uh, but we only have a few minutes, and let me just raise one point. Sure. The state's interest in protecting uh, fetal life, according to Blackman becomes compelling post-viability. Now, why would fetal life that was wholly dependent on the mother's womb be not worth protecting before viability, right. but a fetal life that's wholly protected on an incubator be protected post-viability? Right. You know, it, it doesn't... From that perspective, it doesn't it doesn't make any sense. In right. both instances, we have a being that is wholly dependent on someone else, either doctors and nurses post viability or the mother pre viability. Yep. What they ultimately um, want to argue is that the Supreme Court, in its and this field is called substantive due process because we're talking about unenumerated rights, rights that are in the text of the Constitution, that the Supreme Court has struck an appropriate balance over the years in determining what unenumerated rights should be protected, that it was respectful of precedent and of history, but it didn't make history absolutely controlling. Now, if you look at the line of cases... You start off with Bridgewell versus Connecticut in 1965, mm -hmm. which was actually a very narrow ruling. Right. What, what the majority said was that married couples have a right to determine their marital intimacy for, free from governmental regulation. Mm -hmm. 
Now, seven years later, the Supreme Court decides a case called Eisenstadt versus Baird. It was right. written by Justice Brennan. And Brennan says, and this is the ju- all the justification he, he provides, is marriages don't have rights, people have rights. Well, that's true. But people have rights within certain associations, like marriage. Right. Right? So he said, well, if, if marriages don't have rights, if people have rights, then it shouldn't depend upon whether you're married or not to be able to purchase contraceptives. And he said, therefore, uh, the right of a person to bear or beget a child, as recognized in Griswold, was afforded not only to married couples, but also to individuals. Griswold said nothing about the right to bear a child. It talked about the right to beget a child. Right. There's a big, big difference in whether to conceive a child or whether to destroy a life that's already existing. Sure. Yeah. Well, the next step was the next year, Roe versus Wade, where the Supreme Court codified the right to abort, and then Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992, which reaffirmed Roe. And then if you fast forward a bit, get to Lawrence versus Texas, where the court, without any historical justification for this, said there was a right of intimate associations with it, which include homosexual conduct. And then a few years after that, without not only any historical justification, but as the, as the Chief Justice said in dissent, without any constitutional basis, he said, look, you can celebrate same-sex marriage, but don't celebrate the Constitution. It had nothing to do with it. <laughs> uh, now, if this, if this is the kind of gradual approach to unenumerated rights that the dissenters want to uh, perpetuate, there's no limitation on it. Right. Uh, there's no limitation on the courts being able to kind of just infuse into the Constitution whatever it thinks are appropriate values for society. Yeah. Yeah, isn't this isn't this a part of the the folly of the sweet mystery of life passage uh, that we we've heard? Where uh, I think it's Justice Kennedy wrote something that, and he used it in uh, Casey v. Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Used it in Lawrence v. Texas, and it shows up in Obergefell too. And that is that the essential that uh, essential to liberty uh, is you know uh, each individual's right to. Uh, Discover it, uh, its own uh, its own morality, its own meaning. It's so uh, it, it, it makes liberty. I guess what I'm saying is, doesn't that leave us with complete uh, subjectivity when it comes to well, the concept de- of liberty? It depends upon what we're talking about. If we're talking about freedom of thought, whether government can come in and regulate consciences. Even Aquinas would agree with that. Sure. All right, that government can't regulate the internal forum. But we're not talking about just freedom of thought. We're talking about freedom of action. And if what the Constitution says is that you have a complete freedom of action to fulfill what you think is right, then the result is, of course, anarchy. Right. Uh, that everybody gets to do what they want, and there's, there's a breakdown in social order. Now, what O'Connor said in Casey was possibly that intimate and personal actions are protected, but that's such a broad standard. Right. I mean, it would, of course, include suicide. Right. 
which is it's certainly intimate and personal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if the problem with substantive due process, as Justice Thomas keeps saying, is the unbridled judicial discretion, a standard like intimate and personal, isn't going to limit any judge from doing anything he or she wants. Right, right. Is the, is the idea of substantive due process in some way... Uh, oxymoronic i mean process has to do with uh you know uh, working something through substance has to do with content uh is is there such a thing as substantive due process well what they meant by due process of law was the law of the land they had a particular drafting problem which we don't have time to get into but the the fifth amendment which limits federal power also has a due process clause and the Supreme Court decided the case in 1855, um, Murray versus Hoboken uh, Land and the Hootenham uh, Society, where the Supreme Court said, look, it means the law of the land. And it applies to Congress, which is capable of making both substantive and procedural rules. Yeah. yeah. All right. So from that perspective, it, you know, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Well, thank you so much uh, for being with me. And uh, great making your acquaintance, Stephen. Hope we can talk again in the future. Thanks. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Stephen Mikovich uh, teaches at the Avonria School of Law, where he is a visiting professor, excuse me, uh, teaching on constitutional theory in the light of Catholic moral teaching. I'm Al Cresto.